Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Catherine Ladone. Catherine is an associate editor at Simon & Schuster Books for young readers, as well as an author herself. Catherine, did I properly describe what you do? Yep, associate editor is perfect. Perfect. (laughs) Well, first off, welcome to the show. Really excited to have you. Hi, thanks for having me. Tell us, where are you in the world right now? Are you in New York? I'm actually not. Uh, right now, I'm actually in New Jersey. I came home this weekend to go apple picking with some coworkers. My family lives out here. So yeah, I've been soaking up the trees and, and the nice fall weather before I head back to it to the city for work tomorrow. And as far as working in the city, is it necessary to be in New York? Is it important as an editor to be here? Or could you work remote? Could you be anywhere to work in this industry? For children's, I really would say that it's crucial to work in New York. So many kids' publishing houses are there. I know that there are some in other areas like Boston um, and Philadelphia or Pittsburgh, I should say, I believe have a few. But I think uh, it's really important to be where the heart of the industry is. Obviously, we do have editors who do work remotely, and that's totally doable. But I think usually you're a little further along in your career where, you know, you might have an assistant in the office, um, kind of being your eyes and ears in the office, and you can do more remotely. But for me, you know, for being a younger editor, it definitely helps to be in the city um, and just be where everything is happening. And you're at Simon & Schuster Books now in New York, as we just discussed, but you haven't always been there. Can you tell us before we dive into kind of what you do, how you got to this point? What was your kind of career trajectory on your way up? Yeah, definitely. So I went to college at Emerson um, College in Boston. I got a BFA in writing literature and publishing. And I kind of got into that because, you know, I always loved to write. I always loved reading books. So I knew I wanted to do something there for my career. And I remember actually high school English uh, teacher saying, well, you know, someone has to make the books. And that was such an amazing statement because I kind of thought they just appeared on a shelf, you know, up until that point. So that's why I specifically chose a uh, a program that focused on publishing as well as writing. And yeah, you know, all during college, I was fortunate because my family did live close to the city. When I would be home, I got to intern at some different houses um, and agencies in the city. I interned at Sourcebooks, HarperCollins, Distal Goddard and Literary Management, um, and a few other places in Boston as well when I was at school. And uh, I also was part of a mentorship program through my school where we got paired up with someone in the industry. And I was fortunate to get paired up with someone at Simon & Schuster. She did adult um, editing, but I still got to meet with her like twice a year and just kind of find out more about the industry. And then when I graduated, I started applying for kids specific jobs and you know interviewed a few places and thankfully Simon Schuster was the perfect fit. So um and I've been there a little over 6 years now kind of rising up through the ranks. <laughs> so we normally interview all types of writers, agents, editors. In this case I would love to talk to you about your process, walk through what it means to be an editor. Are you cool with uh walking through your process? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So yeah. first question, 
I mentioned in your bio, you're an editor, but there are different levels of editors. You are an associate editor. Tell us what those levels are. Where are you kind of, where's your trajectory going? Sure. So I'll just kind of briefly say all the different titles and kind of go up from there, I guess. So everyone starts out as an editorial assistant. And then from there, you become an assistant editor, an associate editor, an editor, a senior editor, an executive editor, an editorial director, and publisher is the highest you can really go. So an editorial assistant, you know, sounds, it is what it sounds like. You are assisting, (laughs) you know, a higher up editor at a different level. And it's really a great time of, I really kind of see it as an apprenticeship. Obviously, you are doing a lot of admin work for that editor and helping support them, but you're learning the entire time. Uh, You're reading submissions for them and giving feedback. You're reading some of the projects that they're working on and starting to develop your own editorial tastes and seeing how another editor edits and deciding what parts of their process you're going to take to make your own. And you're also learning how to interact with other departments, design, marketing, publicity, um, because they're all we all work very closely together from start to finish, production, managing ed. Uh, you're also getting familiar with going through different stages of a book, not just editing the rough draft, but when you get the first you know, first past pages where they look like a book, but you still have to go through and make sure that things are looking correctly and that the author's notes are getting incorporated. And then an assistant editor kind of, again, it's another level up um, within the apprenticeship where I think at that point, you know, you've pretty much mastered the paperwork part of it. You've mastered the basics and you're really starting to read more alongside the editor who you're working with on their project and you're giving more feedback. A lot of times, Behind every great editor, there is an assistant who is um, also giving feedback and maybe giving a different perspective than the editor's doing as well. And so it's even more great feedback for that author to incorporate. And then when you get to my level, an associate uh, editor level, you're really also, in addition to um, assisting, you are taking on your own projects That by that point. Um, I started taking on my own projects toward, you know, right before I was promoted to associate. So I was still an assistant editor. But, you know, you start out slow, like one or two books a year. But as an associate editor, you're kind of building that really healthy list. I'm trying to do two to three titles a season. And there are three seasons a year. You know, we do spring, summer, and fall for our books um, at Simon & Schuster. And so, you know, as an associate editor, it's really kind of the stepping stone to get to editor next. And, you know, once you're at editor level, obviously, by that point, ideally, you know, Every house is different, but within our structure, you're not really assisting as much as you're really focusing on just your sole list. And at that point as an editor, you're usually taking on an assistant of your own and starting to have that support, but also to apprentice and mentor that person as well. And then as you keep going on in your career, you know, senior and executive editor, you're taking on more responsibilities, more titles, higher profile clients sometimes, uh, you know, celebrity authors or people who have a great platform that's really going to boost the project they're doing. An editorial director is interesting because traditionally you're doing your own list, but you're really also kind of, you're helping all the editors and assistants below you with any problems or questions that arise that maybe the publisher just doesn't have the time for. You know, the publisher is very involved, but they also have to go to so many meetings and, um, you know, they're also dealing with other level structure within the house. So for an editorial director, they're also giving more creative feedback and on day-to-day basis, trying to answer the questions so that the publisher can do their job even more streamlined, if that makes sense. So um, so yeah, so right now as an associate editor, I'm really focusing on 
building my own list as well as uh, I do assist a deputy publisher who uh, kind of coordinates between editorial publicity and marketing. And then I also assist a senior editor with her own list, which is mostly middle grade at this point. I do everything. I do picture book, middle grade, and teen. And, you know, my trajectory, uh, you know, short term is I obviously want to get up to that next step of editor where I can really focus fully on my list and, you know, start mentoring other assistants below me when that happens and just keep growing from there. So. And what makes you specifically different than any other editor? You work in children's or for young readers, but do you Mm -hmm. specialize in a particular genre? Sure. So uh, like I said, I do all, you know, three levels. I do picture book, middle grade and teen. You know, I definitely would say for teen and middle grade, my list tends to go more toward the contemporary, which is nice because we're seeing a nice resurgence of that in the market right now. But I would say something I always, uh, you know, I, I always love stories, regardless of the age range, picture book, middle grade or teen that deal with strong relationships or deal with a strong coming of age hook to it. I love books that are both entertaining, but also have a heart to them, um, have a message. Because, uh, you know, sometimes I think books can go too much both ways. Sometimes they're purely entertaining reads, which is fine. But, you know, sometimes <laughs> at the end, I'm like, well, that was fun. But what was kind of the bigger message? Right. Um, but then also, sometimes I'll read a story where it's more, you know, tough issue focus, which again, there's a need for those books. But sometimes I wish, oh, well, you know, the world's kind of intense enough. I wish that there'd been more entertainment value, you know, so I could escape my everyday. I like the books that kind of hit that sweet spot where there's meaning underneath the entertainment factor so that, you know, hopefully I'm hitting both parts of that readership need, you know, where any reader can pick it up and get what they're looking for from it, whether it be pure entertainment value or, or a deeper message. So, you know, I definitely look for those common themes across the board. You know, whether it's relationships, uh, voice is very important to me. I want a character who my readers can relate to, whether they're four years old or 16, you know. So I'd say that's probably hopefully a a good summarization of, you know, what makes me specific in terms of what I'm looking for. And what skills would you say make for a good editor? What are those qualities that you have that have maybe led to your success or make you a great editor? I think one is editorial taste. And that's very, you know, subjective, which is very hard to explain to one another, because everyone has their own editorial taste. And, you know, I think it's frustrating, because people are like, you either have it or you don't. And that's so vague, (laughs) you know. But I think the best way I can describe that is someone who is aware of the marketplace, what is currently selling well, but then also someone who is willing to see a need within the market, what is missing currently, and kind of bridge that gap looking for projects that, you know, will sell actual copies, but also are filling a need that they're passionate about also. So I think that is very much needed, that editorial taste, knowing what is good or not. And that's, again, something that some people can develop over time during those younger years, whether you're an intern or an editorial assistant. You know, just like how we tell authors, the more you read, the better you'll be at writing. The more you're reading and evaluating submissions, the better you get at it. And then also, I think the other important part is collaboration. Like I said, um, as an editor, I'm constantly working with other people, uh, whether it's a designer, um, someone in-house in marketing uh, that we're trying to figure out the best way to position a book. And obviously, at its core, I need to be very good with working with people because that is my job to work with editors and agents and authors as well. 
uh, you know, because essentially editing is taking two people's takes on a story and, you know, using each other's visions to form this fully polished manuscript, you know, and if I couldn't communicate well with someone, then that would be a utter disaster, (laughs) you know, and I think some of it too is, as an editor, like, being able to see what a project can be being able to see the long term goal and being able to see how an arc can develop. You know, I, I always struggled with math growing up. My brain's not wired for numbers, but when I'm editing a project, I can kind of look at a chapter and say, oh my gosh, like this needs to be brought up more because then this will make this pay off two chapters later stronger, you know, or we need to move this up sooner so that we can build this character's growth from point A to point B by the end of the story. So a lot of it too is kind of being able to see the big picture and then being able to help an author um, rearrange or expand on the pieces to make that big picture what it could be on that level. So yeah, so I would just say overall, again, collaboration, editorial taste is important and being well-informed of the marketplace and just that ability to collaborate and see see the potential in project, you know, and see what a project can be, because that is your whole job as an editor to help the author make the best book possible. Something that writers are very interested in and excited about is how a book gets into an editor's hands. Can you walk us through from a high level that process? How does a book get to you? Does it need to go through an agent? I know sometimes for certain publishing companies, it does, for some it doesn't. Can you just walk us through how it gets to you? Sure. So at my house, you know, and at many houses nowadays, um, we do like solicited submissions more than unsolicited, which basically means an agented um, submission. So um, traditionally, an agent will send me a pitch along with a manuscript for a project that they'd love for me to consider. And, you know, usually sometimes it's a cold email. I've never met this agent before and, or they're brand new to the industry and they're just kind of getting started. Sometimes it's an agent who I've worked with before and, you know, I'm really excited. I know that we seem to like the same types of books, so she'll keep sending those books to me or he'll keep sending them to me. And then other times it's sometimes an agent who I reached out to where I saw several book deals that they've done that I think I would love a book like that on my list. And I've reached out, whether it's through get a cup of coffee or a phone call or just an email saying, hey, I'd love to receive submissions. And so I and it's, it's all about relationships with the agents. So usually I'll get a project from an agent just for my own sanity. I keep a submission log, you know, when I get something, who, who it's from, what category it is, you know, what age range, is it contemporary or fantasy? Sometimes if I read a pitch I'm really excited about, I'll put a little note that says read now. <laughs> so I remember, you know, that, oh, this, this made me excited to jump in. Yeah. And, you know, from there, I read submissions and respond to them. I do my best to be timely, and sometimes it can take a few months to get back on some of them, but usually agents will follow up, and I do my best to always respond and say, hey, I'm so sorry, I've been super busy with this, but I'm going to try to get to it this weekend, thanks for checking in. Sometimes that nudge is helpful, you know, to remind me, oh, right, I have this submission that I wanted to read. And then other times, you know, again, I'm just trying to go through them as I can. 
am going to pass on a submission. I usually try to think of something helpful um, to explain why I'm passing on it. Sometimes it is that subjectivity where I just didn't connect with the voice or I loved the voice, but I just didn't love the plot, you know, Um, and I want to take on a project that I am like over the moon about that I am 100% invested in because that all will come out later when I'm helping the author shape it and when I'm helping the author promote it when it goes on sale, you know, from my perspective. So, you know, I know it can be frustrating for authors when they get kind of a generic, like, I didn't connect with it, but you want to wait for that editor who's like, this is the project I want to work on because that is worth waiting for because it makes all the difference. And yeah, sometimes it's something that I really loved the idea of the plot. I loved the writing, but maybe it just quite wasn't there. And I, you know, I know my own team, I have to share it with people before I can acquire it. And I might know it's not quite strong enough to get a yes. So I might even write back to the agent and say, I loved all of this, but I think this still really needs work before I can bring it in. Would the author be interested in a revision or an R&R? Some people might have heard that term before, a revise and resubmit. And from there, uh, you know, it's totally up to the author. Sometimes they'll say yes, but I'm going to keep submitting it to other editors while you're doing this. And that's usually totally fine. But a lot of times it's really helpful because, uh, you know, we can get a project to where it needs to be to get a yes later on. And, you know, unfortunately, there are also some times where there's a revision, but it's still not quite there. But hopefully, you know, I've given feedback. So hopefully, as that author keeps querying with their agent, my notes have helped it in some way, you know, I would hope so for the next editor who they're submitting it to. And I have had projects where that was the case where I had to work with an author a few rounds to get it where it needed to be. And but I think it makes it even the sweeter when I get a yes. So anyway, jumping back to the regular process. So say I love something, right? And I want to bring it in. Usually I bring it to a staff meeting where basically all the other editors, regular editor, you know, senior editor, editorial assistants, the publisher, they all dip into it and read it. And we have a discussion and we talk about, you know, the practical side of, okay, well, what's the market doing? Will this work? Is this something we can sell? How will we pitch it to our sales reps? How will we pitch it to our accounts? And, you know, and we also get to have the fun discussions about, oh my gosh, I totally loved this character and I can't believe they did that. You know, we get to talk about the story itself. And if there's any areas that still need smoothing over, we make sure that everyone's on the same page. Sometimes I might even get a request from my publisher to ask for a revision and I can bring it back because they, again, they see the merit and the potential, but it's not there. And then, you know, in the best case scenario, everyone's on board. We talk about what we need to talk about and then we bring it to an acquisitions meeting next. An acquisition meeting has the head of children's, the president. It has the head of sales, the head of marketing, publicity, people from our sub rights team who sell it to other countries, the different rights. Uh, We have people really from just every different department. And everyone, again, dips in and gives their feedback because sales might have a question that we didn't think of in our staff meeting about how they might position something. And um, we usually have some really great discussions about it. And Again, best case scenario, everyone's fully on board, super excited about the project, and I can then go ahead and make an offer. Acquisitions is also when we talk about the money part, which I know is another question authors often have. You know, I have to do a profit and loss statement or a P&L before I bring in every project. I also have to come up with a comp sheet, which is basically other books in the market that I think are similar to this, to the concept or to the audience we're going for. And I have to bring both those into acquisitions to help kind of make my case of why this book should be picked out of all the other ones that are out there. And usually we'll have a discussion 
and I'll have a starting amount that I can go in at for my offer and I'll have a cap for how much I can push and then kind of go from there. So that's kind of the mainstream going from I'm reading a submission from an agent to I'm acquiring one. Like I said, sometimes I will see something. I get little postcards all the time of illustrations from you know illustrators who are trying to get out there. And I've found two now that I fell in love with the illustrations and I reached out to their agent and said, hey, do they have a story idea? And I've worked with them. So there is always that room for something unconventional to happen within that process. But usually standard wise, we go from reading to acquisitions. um, And then every once in a while, there's an exception. And sometimes if there's other interest from another house, like if there's going to be an auction, we have to kind of speed up the process. We might not have time to go through both meetings. So we might just bring it to one meeting, either staff or acquisitions, and my publisher will kind of make the final call of what we're going to go in money-wise and what we're going to do with the project. So Specifically regarding the discovery of a book or taking on a new book, do you ever reach out directly to authors? In the case where we've heard authors self-publish, becomes very successful, would there then become interest from you reaching out to that author and saying, oh, hey, let's turn that into a book with us? Mm -hmm. Yes. I have not necessarily done it yet. I have developed IP projects, which is when I have an idea for a story that I think is needed in the market or a story that I just would love to edit. And I then, you know, work with an agent to find an author to write it and it becomes their book, you know, essentially, but it's based on the idea that I'm bringing to the table and we collaborate on it. But I do know there have been times where in the past at my house where there have been authors who, for example, uh, what pad, you know, they, they've done amazingly self-publishing and they've brought the book in to do a hard uh, edition for readers who might want to buy the series or continue the series in hardcover. I know sometimes it doesn't always work. Sometimes, you know, readers are like, well, I liked it when I could read it for free or read it for discounted, you know, significantly online. And sometimes the printed books don't sell as well. But then other times it does really well. I think Sourcebooks has a series uh, that starts with the one called The Seller. And she was another author who like exploded on Wattpad. And they've done so many books with her because I think that just the following is there and they want the printed books. And at some point she only wrote the printed books of her story. So people kind of had to switch the medium. So no, that definitely happens. And there are definitely times where I've reached out to someone to say, would you be interested in doing a book deal? And sometimes they're like, no, thank you. And other times they're like, oh, this is a good idea. And again, there's negotiation and there's trying to come up with what the project will be. And sometimes it comes to fruition and sometimes it falls apart. So whenever I'm reaching out to someone directly, I always kind of keep an open mind that it could go either way. You know, we could wind up with a really great book or we could wind up parting ways. You know, it always depends. And when it comes to doing an IP project where I'm creating the premise and hiring someone to create the content, well, not even create the content, but to, you know, usually I'll give a pretty, pretty detailed outline for them. But, you know, they're filling in the gaps and actually writing the story itself and collaborating on the content, I should say. Usually I'll still try to go through an agent because, you know, I can tell them the type of writer I'm hoping to find and they can help me streamline that process instead of me just cold turkey emailing people. Dialing it back even more before it even gets to you. I'm sure you get this question a lot, and I know you don't deal with it directly, but I'm curious through your conversations with agents, query letters. I know writers are very curious and excited to hear maybe your feedback on what you've heard makes for maybe the secret of a a good query letter. Yeah, definitely. 
I'm kind of in a unique position because I've heard from agents, you know, and I, I read and listen to interviews just like anyone else uh, that agents put out there. But also, since I got to intern at some agencies, I kind of saw firsthand so many different types of query letters. And then also, as a writer myself, I've queried, you know, so I kind of think I have, you know, it's been kind of fun to see it from different angles and see where things overlap from being strictly an agent to being strictly an author or strictly an editor. I think overall, from what I've heard and from what I've seen, I think the most important thing is to just be succinct and be to the point. It's almost like applying for a job with a resume or a cover letter in that regard. You know, if you're submitting a 10-page detailed, detailed letter, no one really wants to sit and read that, you know? So nah. usually rule of thumb, I think, for pitches, it's almost like get in, say what you got to say, and kind of get out. So, you know, start off by saying, what the project is, what the age range is, what the category is that you're submitting to them. And usually some type of hook that's going to say, this is what my book is about in a sentence to grab their interest. And then usually, you know, a paragraph, sometimes a paragraph and a half to two, just briefly describing the plot maybe of the project, like hitting the important point. And then, you know, the last paragraph I usually have seen or, or hear that it's good to just talk about yourself a little bit. If you are, you have like a degree or you know a master's in something that you're writing about you should definitely mention it you know because then you're kind of saying I'm an authority on this subject matter and so that's why my take on this book is going to be better and different than anyone else's sometimes just something as simple as like oh in my free time I love to you know crochet or fly a kite or something <laughs> you know or if you have a unique hobby because also you know you're trying to essentially you're essentially fishing for a relationship with that agent you're trying to find someone who's going to understand you as a person as well as an artist. And so you really want to kind of also put in a little bit of personality when talking about yourself so that you're not just another name on a page, you're a person to them. And then this is huge. And this also goes for when I get pitches from agents, be specific. Don't just say, dear agent, you know, definitely do your research and your homework before. Every agent is different because every agent's a human being who has different tastes and likes. And usually on their website page, they'll say exactly what they want. Some agents want a full synopsis. So then you know to give it to them. Some say, I don't want a full synopsis unless I ask. And, you know, just following those simple instructions and in submitting can go a long way because they know that you're paying attention and you've specifically researched them. And that first paragraph, it's always nice if you can kind of say why you're reaching out to them specifically. For example, you can say, I think you would be a great agent for this book because I know you repped this other book that I loved that deals with a similar topic. And so I think you'll be a great representative for my book. Because right there you're saying, I looked into you, I looked into what you like, and I'm not wasting your time. I'm instead coming to you because I think you're the best for the job. And the same goes for when I get a query letter. The best query letters I like is when an agent says, I read this book that you edited, and I think this author would be great to add to your list for this reason. Or I saw you made this deal, and I think this would be great. Or I read, I read your wish list on Twitter, and I think I have the perfect thing to fit this need. Again, you're showing that you have done your research and that you've put in the time and the effort and the care to make sure it's going to the right person. So I think those are definitely things to keep in mind when you're querying. Don't start, don't be generic when reaching out to just anybody. Be deliberate and be sensitive and take the time. And then I think, you know, the other thing too is just give exactly what they asked for in a submission. And then also, if they want to see more, they can always ask. So just kind of get in and say what you're hoping to get from this agent reviewing your work. Oh, and I will say another thing too is 
so often in pitch letters. Um, and I've seen it both, you know, from the agent side as well as the other side that so often someone will say, I have the next Harry Potter, right. or, you know, I have the next Twilight, or, you know, I have the next, uh, you know, fangirl. And, you know, that's a pretty tall order to be a pretty tall standard to put on your own work, too, you know, because it took a lot for those writers to get where they are there. I always like to suggest, say, my book is perfect for fans of fangirl, or my book is this book meets this book. They had a baby or something, you know? Like put it still put it into context of the market because again you're showing that you've done your research and you know what target audience you're going for with your book, but at the same time you're being realistic because when, as an editor I can't bring in a project and say this is going to be the next Harry Potter because everyone's going to be like there's only one Harry Potter and like it takes a lot to sell that many copies. What's a more realistic example, you know, of what has done well but isn't this international big bestseller necessarily off the off the bat. So I think just also keep keep your letter real, keep it realistic in terms of what you're hoping to achieve with it as well. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city. While our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writer experience for your free audiobook. The Flickering Myth Podcast is a source for all of the weekly entertainment news that we could possibly be bothered to talk about. Tune in every Tuesday for a roundtable discussion featuring a host of Flickering Myth writers and contributors. You can find us on all your favorite podcatchers as well as right here at flickeringmyth.com, part of the Flickering Myth Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Alan Christian. I'm Gerald James. And I'm Lacey Day. And we host the Four Color Film Podcast. What do we do at the Four Color Film Podcast, Gerald? We watch and dissect every comic book-based film. Lacey, do you still like being here? Yeah, it's really great. (laughs) (laughs) You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, and wherever else they have good podcasts and podcasts like these. You sound like a kidnapping victim. (laughs) Also on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network at Flickering Myth. Com, along with other great shows. Check us out and check them out too. Thank you. Hell Zane. Hell Zane. Hell Zane. And when an agent submits the pitch to you, you mentioned that sometimes an idea strikes you and you write down read now because it makes you so excited you want to read that tell us about what's the secret to writing a pitch that gets you that excited and gets you to write down read now oh it's a tough question because <laughs> uh, again so subjective you know everyone gets excited by different things honestly i i think sometimes the pitches that are most exciting are the ones that like have that perfect balance between there's a plot that sounds really interesting but then also there's some type of 
something about the character that's very unique or different, you know, whether it's their background or something that they're struggling with, something that makes them unique, that the two together sound really interesting. Uh, I also love pitches where it's something that I can relate to. It's relating to to maybe a a cultural reference or, or something from the past that did well, but then telling me what's new about it with the spin. For example, I have a project that just came out called She's the Worst by Lauren Spieler. And when we were coming up with the pitch, we wound up doing Ferris Bueller's Day Off meets 10 Things I Hate About You. And everyone was really excited because, you know, those are two really classic teen movies that have kind of stood the test of time. So when you say, you know, oh, it's Ferris Bueller's Day Off meets 10 Things I Hate About You, but with two sisters, one day in Los Angeles and a, and a secret childhood pact, you know, like you're combining something that people will recognize and get excited about with something new, like, oh, there's a pact, there's secrets, there's all the juicy drama that people crave within a contemporary drama like that. So I think Trying to whet my appetite with something that I know about, but then something that's totally different twist. Or go with something that has a really cool premise, but also a really cool emotional hook. A good example of that would be Shatter the Sky by Rebecca Kim Wells. That's another book that just came out this past July that I worked on. And basically, the premise in a nutshell is she said, uh, a girl's going to go save her kidnapped girlfriend from an emperor by stealing a dragon. Like, who, that sounds pretty exciting to me. You know, you got the plot of let's go steal a dragon, but also you got this emotional, oh my gosh, my girlfriend's been kidnapped, you know, and, and I'll do anything to save her. So that's kind of a good example of how you're marrying together a plot as well as that emotional hook that just gets me excited. So hopefully, again, it's it's hard because every editor gets excited about different things. Um, and that's also why it's good to do your homework. For example, I put it out there pretty openly. When I do edit fantasy, I love dragons. So, <laughs> you know, she kind of <laughs> had me at dragons, but the other aspects definitely grabbed me as well. As far as today's climate or right now, what is working, uh, what's trending, what's successful, are there any genres or concepts right off the top that you could save any writers who are starting to work on a new story and maybe say, definitely don't go in this direction because that is just mm-hmm. going to be a waste of your time? I would say I feel like super niche fantasy or sci-fi is not really prevalent right now. That's not to say that none of it exists because there's always a reader who wants that and there's different imprints who specialize in that. But, you know, I think it's pretty safe to say like vampires, werewolves, you know, sometimes mermaids even like those are examples of super niche, even angels, you know, demons like that level or like YA. I think that, you know, there was that big wave when Twilight came out several years ago. um, And that was when it was huge. And then I think there was too much of it. And then the market kind of backed off. And, you know, I think it's very clear right now with like successes like Five Feet Apart and To All the Boys I've Loved Before. And I think it's safe to say contemporary has definitely been more prevalent right now. But also fantasy is still doing well, too, in teen. And again, this is just specifically in teen as an example. Um, I think teen wise fantasy is still going strong, but I think you've also seen trends where with Game of Thrones, everyone was really excited about, you know, like the Furyborn series by Claire Legrand, and, you know, because it had that idea of there's a uh, royal hierarchy that's getting upset, you know, or there's a despot getting overthrown somewhere. And that royal take on fantasy seemed to be popular for a while. And I think it still is in some ways. But yeah, so, you know, I think, again, it's just kind of going and seeing what is currently selling really well. I think, you know, the same thing can go for picture books and for and for middle grade. You know, if you look at the bestseller list or what's getting starred reviews, middle grade, I think, is still pretty mixed. Like there's always some room for a fun fantasy, but then there is some, you know, more tender 
emotional character driven stories. But yeah, you know, you kind of just have to kind of wait and see. And I think contemporary is more of a genre, but I think it's almost become a trend in a weird way. In the past, it would have been, oh, like, fantasy is still fantasy, but angels and demons are the trend right now, or vampires are the trend right now. But I think it's interesting. So many readers right now are just being drawn to, uh, I I like to call them like the happy-go-lucky contemporary. You know, I think everyone's feeling like the world can be kind of weighty right now with all the issues going on in our country and outside our country. But I think people just want a fun rom-com, you know, like, or they just want something that kind of makes them forget. And I think contemporary and fantasy have been doing a good job specifically for teen right now, because it's not focusing on one specific trend. It's kind of being more just driven by what what the readers want um, in a different way. So, but yeah, again, and you know, it's always very generic. So, I mean, that's not to say that you can't ever sell, sell a sci-fi, you know, project or anything, you know, I think just, you got to see what wave is being written right now within the market and kind of go from there. And the other thing too, is don't chase every trend either. Cause remember it usually takes minimum a year to put out a book. So right now, rom-coms could be the thing. And next year, by next year, we could be on to something else. So I always advise, don't go chasing after a trend. Write the book you want to write. And sometimes there are books that might not be a popular subject, but two years later, they'll sell like hotcakes because that topic has come back into vogue. And when you're ready to choose a project that you want to take on, what does that deal look like? What does the first meeting with the author look like? And then obviously, we haven't talked about the money side of things on the podcast before. And I obviously know you can't divulge a ton, but what does that look like? Is there, I assume, a pool that is offered and then a certain percentage of that goes up front to the author, I assume at the end, and then a bunch obviously to the production and marketing of the book and that kind of thing. Yeah. So once I've submitted an offer and, you know, sometimes there's some back and forth with an agent, but then once we get the deal officially approved, um, there's a lot of rejoicing in the land. (laughs) Usually I, I like to, you know, call the author. I'll usually get their contact info from the agent so I can call and congratulate them over the phone in person versus just an email. You know, I think it's more exciting that way. And also, I mean, th- there's usually a good chance I, when I'm making an offer, if especially if there's been more interest besides just me, that I might have talked to the author ahead of time and maybe talked about the vision I have for their book so that they would pick me over the other editors who might have been buying for the book. Then other times, this might be the first time I'm talking to the author at all. And basically, I just gush, you know, because I'm just at that point, I'm so excited. I'm going to get to work on your book that I just want to tell you how much I love your book and the parts that I'm just excited to go at. And usually up front, I ask if there are any questions, because, you know, a lot of times I'm working with first time authors who have never done the process before. And sometimes they might ask, like, I know you're going to actually edit my book in detail and give me notes, but like, is there one or two things off the bat that you think we're going to work on? And I might say, oh, yeah, you know, I think pacing wise, we can make the book go a little faster here. Or, oh, this character needs to be developed a bit. And I don't go into too much detail, but I kind of give them an idea of where I'm going to be guiding them down the road, you know, when they get that first editorial letter. Often a lot of authors ask off the top, like, how does like promoting the book work and publicity and like, what do I have to do? And a lot of times, honestly, I, I say, listen, you know, There's plenty of time for that. You know, we're so early on. um, There's not even a publicist assigned because the publicist doesn't know this book exists yet, you know, Um, and there's time to to work through that. So really, that first that first introductory phone call is really just kind of a get to know you. Let me tell you how much I love your book and how excited I am to work with you and to ask any basic questions that they might have. 
and to kind of give them an idea that, you know, I'll be reaching out to you, you know, in another month or, oh, I'm going to get on this right away because my my editing schedule is pretty free, kind of go from there. And usually after I send the first batch of edits and my editorial notes, I'll have another phone call if they feel sometimes my author is like, no, I'm feeling pretty good. I agree with what you're saying. And, you know, I'm just going to go off and do my edits and I'll let you know if I have any questions. But usually, usually authors kind of want to, they might have a question about something I brought up, or they might want to d- brainstorm with me even about something they're thinking of doing. So all of that comes a little later after I've had a chance to actually edit the first draft. Yeah. And then in terms of money, you know, every house is very different. Usually uh, when we're picking an advance to give an author, we want to give an advance that is, you know, we do try to give one that's fair. But also the other thing to keep in mind is I think you know, everyone thinks more money is better, but sometimes a smaller advance is not a bad thing because I think what authors forget is you have to earn out your advance before you start getting royalties. And the royalties are really the steady income that will come later for a book. Like an advance is an upfront one-time payment, really. It's usually split up between you get half when you're signing the contract and then you get half when you've delivered the final book. So there have been times where, you know, in auctions, book deals go very high because everyone's just trying to get the book and you might get a really high advance. And if the book does becomes a bestseller, that's fantastic. You'll earn out your advance, no problem. But then other times it might, you know, it it still might sell well, but it's not selling enough to make up that first amount of money. So you might not see royalties for a couple of years, if at all. So that's something we try to keep in mind. We want to pay an amount that makes sense, but also that in some ways will help the author too. We don't want to overpay for a book because ultimately that's money out of our pocket that we might not have to do. But also the author's not going to earn out their book for a very long time. And then, of course, in different situations, we know, okay, yeah, we got to offer a lot because a lot of people want this project and we think it's going to be the best here. Um, And kind of go from there. An author will get uh, a percentage of, like I said, royalties um, for different formats. So uh, anthology rights. So if someone wants to print, you know, a selection, you would get a percentage of that payment. We usually try to get world rights. This basically means our sub rights team will sell, uh, will try to sell your book to other countries to license it, to, you know, put it in different languages, for example, or to make it into an audiobook. And an author gets a percentage of, of every sale on um, the same way that a publisher does. And of course, you know, there's different exceptions, there's different deals. Sometimes we'll only get North American rights, which means that the agent then will sell those rights for worlds for like translation and, and those different licenses. But th- there's always a percentage um, for both sides uh, to working with the publisher. And again, those profit and loss statements are important because that's almost like a trial where we say, okay, what's the amount of money we can pay that will still make the book sell well and also turn a profit both for us and the author? And what royalties work best? It's a spreadsheet. I'm not going to pretend to know <laughs> how the spreadsheet is made. You know, we let our finance people deal with that. And then, you know, every house has a different marketing budget. So a house, you know, does hundreds of titles, you know, if not thousands a year. And so we always do marketing for every book, but we have to pick and choose which books are going to get the marketing, the extra marketing money, or, you know, we'll decide what's the best way to use the money we do have to make it go the longest way for the author. And just because that is the fact that there are so many books, that's why it's important for an author to do as much self-promotion nowadays as they can. I think in the past, 
there wasn't so much, but now that you have social media and author visits, like there's definitely more opportunities for authors to kind of jump in and get their hands dirty, you know, when it comes to helping to promote their own book, which is really great from an editor perspective. I love helping authors send out copies for blurbs, you know, for the jacket or helping them get connected with someone in our ed library department who can give them advice to help them set up a, you know, school meeting. And so every, every little bit helps in that regard. But that's kind of like a general overall view of how some of the money works. You know, I think everyone thinks that the bigger the advance, the better. And I think people forget that royalties and those additions, the different licenses and rights are also very important in the longevity of a book's lifespan on the shelf. And then as far as once that deal is signed and you start working with the author, can you walk us through that whole process of when you first start working with them, what your notes look like and how long it takes you and when you know that you're ready, okay, this book is as close as it can be to getting it published? Yeah, definitely. So once I kind of start going in, uh, and, and I will I will preface this by saying every editor has a different process, every single editor. And actually, I'd say to authors too, if you have the opportunity to talk to an editor who you're thinking about signing up with, you can ask, you can say, by the way, like, what's your editing process like? You know, am I going to get it through track changes? Do you do a hard copy edit? How many rounds do you tend to go? These are all fair questions. Um, and they're also questions you should definitely ask an agent before you sign with them. You know, say, what's your feedback like? Are you a hands-on editing agent or do you tend to just kind of take it, give general feedback and then just submit it on the first go round? So those are all fair questions to ask. So from my personal process, I like to edit on hard paper, especially for the first few rounds, because I just think personally I catch more, you know, and it's nice that I can easily flip back and forth between pages. Like if I need to cross-reference a chapter with a previous one or a different page number, and, you know, I'll kind of just go through and I will do line edits um, and different comments on in the margins as I go. One of my personal pet peeves, and it comes up later too when the copy edit goes through it, is when like certain words always get repeated. Everyone likes their character to sigh or to smile every other sentence, you know, or the same word might keep popping up. You might describe something the same way. And that just happens when you're writing a book. You forget that you've already used that so many times before. So I, when I go through, I'll also kind of just call out those instances. So when you're revising, you might say, oh, okay, I got to like go back and vary up how I'm describing this. Or I have to go back and not have everyone sighing all the time, you know, because it gets distracting as a reader when that keeps popping up. So yeah, you know, I'll kind of go through and do that. And then I like to do an edit letter where I basically am addressing big picture areas that I still think need work. And I'll kind of go through and explain in more detail what stood out and what I think could be done. I might offer a suggestion for how the author might address it or several ideas just to kind of get the creative juices flowing on their end. And also before I dive right into what has to be fixed, I usually like to say what's working well with the project. That first paragraph of my letter, I'm going to tell you, I think you did a great job with this character relationship, or you did a great job showing the growth from point A to point B, or, oh my God, I loved how you described that castle, you know, and just calling out what is done really well, because on a basic level, I don't want you to change what you're doing well, you know, like don't delete the section that was great <laughs> when you're revising. But then also just on a basic level, as an artist, you need to know what you're doing well. And, and sometimes, you know, you need to be built up so that when you're now going to talk about what needs to work, you're not devastated or feeling like you failed as a writer. No, it's just everyone needs to work to make something better. So I'll kind of do that. And each round, depending on the type of story and how many emotional or, or plot layers are built in, 
I tend to just naturally, I'll focus on different things. I'll notice something new as we keep honing in the story more and more with, with each draft. And ideally with each draft, my editorial letter will get shorter because things will be getting addressed with each revision. And I think usually standard wise, two to three drafts is normal for a, uh, a book. Sometimes will go to a fourth. I, I do have one project that has gone through six to seven because it, it came in very rough in the beginning. So it took more time to really develop it with the author. But, you know, usually two to three is pretty standard, I think, um, across the board for middle grade and teen. Sometimes picture books might take a few more rounds because you have to be even more, even more critical of every word because there's so few words to tell one story in a picture book. And same thing, there's a whole different process for making sure that the story is being told both through the text as well as the illustrations. But I won't go into that as a whole there. But, you know, just talking basic, like just text only. After those few rounds, eventually I'll get to what I call a polishing round. And at that point, I am doing kind of a bit more of a line edit myself. I'm picking again, I'm, I'm seeing is there anything that's reading really awkwardly? Or is there something that's still not quite hitting the mark that hasn't been addressed fully in the last few? And that's usually a much faster turnaround time from the author too, because it'll then go into copy editing and copy edits, uh, the copy editor will look for consistency for timeline. They will, you know, if something grammatically is not correct, they might query the author and the editor about it. They will call out any words that are also being repeated too many times that maybe the editor missed. Copier does the nitty gritty line editing, um, whereas I look more at the big picture of is the plot and the character arcs making sense. I personally do a heavier line edit again toward the end and as I go along. But every project's different. And that's also what I love about editing. I might have a project that's in really great shape and it needs one revision and we're done, you know? And then other times there's one that takes more time, but maybe I don't have to focus so much on the nitty gritty details. It's more the big picture. It's exciting because it's almost like how a doctor who does operations, every every person, every case is different. So I'm, I'm essentially going in and doing editorial surgery every time. And it's fun for me because every every story is so different and needs different care. Are you ready for something we call a series of seemingly random questions? Absolutely. First one, if you could work with any one author ever and take them to a fast food restaurant, which uh, author would you choose and which restaurant? I bring Rainbow Rowell to Zinberger um, because in Fangirl, Levi was totally like into becoming a farmer and, you know, be <laughs> Farm, farmer makes sense. And I love her work and I'd love to pick her brain about how she came up with uh, different aspects of fangirl. The next question, what's one thing you've learned being an author yourself that helps you to be an editor? It's a hard question. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I'd say be patient. Be patient. Let, let, let the story take the time it needs to, to unfold. And, and let the artist, whether it's myself or another writer or illustrator, take the time they need to tell the story that they want to tell. Next question. If you could be any character you've worked on, which one would you be? I'd be Marin from Shatter the Sky, the dragon novel I told you about earlier, because she doesn't think much of herself and she's kind of not a chosen one, but through her own determination and grit, she kind of becomes the chosen one by the end of the story. and isn't going to let anything stop her, even her own fear. And I really admire that about her character. Next question. If you could ask one question to our next guest, whether it's an author, an editor, an agent, 
What would you ask? The last book you physically bought, did you buy it because of the flap copy or the uh, cover? Interesting. I love that. If you could choose one learning or insight from your career, your entire career, to pass along to aspiring writers or editors, what would you say? Don't waste time. Um, (laughs) As an aspiring author, you could work forever on that one project and never actually pitch it. At some point, don't waste the time. If you put in the work, trust your work and just put it out there and let someone read it. And same for an editor too, uh, or, you know, an editor rising through the ranks. Seize the day, seize every opportunity, um, because with each new project, you're going to get better and better at what you do. The last question, did you have fun talking to us today? Absolutely. This was a blast. (laughs) As it was for us as well. Did you want to plug any projects, whether it's projects you're working for as an editor, or if it's projects that are upcoming? I know you're an author. Is there anything you want to shout out? Sure. Coming out in November, I have an awesome picture book called Tiny Feet Between the Mountains by Hannah Chop. It's a really great story about a little girl. Um, She's kind of looked down on for her size in her village in Korea, but she comes across a spirit tiger who's crying and his fur is on fire. Um, He's kind of the protector of the forest. And he tells her he swallowed the sun by mistake. And so now the sun's inside his tummy and he doesn't know what to do. Um, And so in the, the character has to think big to help him solve his problem. So that's a really fun uh, picture book I'm really excited about that's coming out in November. And then next fall, um, there's a middle grade called Muffled coming out. And it's about a girl with a noise sensitivity who has always worn noise-canceling headphones. Um, And now that she's going to fifth grade, she has to learn to play an instrument. The horror, you know, if you hate sound, (laughs) that's the worst thing imaginable. And she has to, you know, slowly start to cope and make friends. um, And she transitions by wearing a pair of earmuffs as she kind of journeys into that new new school year. So, uh, and that's by Jennifer Gennari, Muffled. Um, so I'm really excited about both those projects coming up. And then as far as your own personal Twitter handle, did you want to shout that out? Sure. You know, feel free to follow me at Catherine Laud. Um, I couldn't fit in my whole last name when I was making <laughs> my Twitter handle. I will say, uh, please don't DM me with any unagented manuscripts just because it can be a little overwhelming, but please feel free to follow me and I'm always sharing about upcoming projects or any advice that I can with any authors. Awesome. Well, thank you, Catherine. Really, really appreciate your insights on editing as well as your time. And yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a really great experience and I hope some of my uh, answers have been helpful. Absolutely. Well, thanks again, Catherine. And thank you to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.